0: On February 3rd, 2023, 38 cars of a freight train carrying hazardous materials derailed in the small town of East Palestine, Ohio. Several cars burned for two days, and then a controlled burn was conducted on several others. There was great concern over the health consequences of both the release of materials and the subsequent burn. Those concerns continue. The incident raised issues around public health response and surveillance and engagement and communication with the affected community. The National Academy of Sciences conducted community engagement sessions, their first ever, to explore those issues and their findings, and that's the topic of today's episode. I'm joined by Dr. Carol Cunningham, State Medical Director at the Ohio Department of Public Safety, Division of Emergency Medical Services. She served in the planning committee for these sessions and has great insight into the report. Dr. Cunningham is an alumnus of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard and was our Meta Leader of the Year in 2021. Carol, welcome to Leader Readycast. Oh, thank you. It's wonderful to be here this morning. It's great to have you. And now, an, just an important note before we get started, Carol is sharing her own thoughts and opinions today. She's not speaking on behalf of her department, the governor, the state of Ohio, the National Academy of Sciences, or the CDC. We're getting it straight from Carol, and given her vast experience, I know it's going to be more than enough. We're going to have a great conversation. So, Carol, let's start at the beginning what was the work of the planning committee and what were the goals of the engagement sessions? Uh,
1: the work of the planning committee was to actually for, get a bunch of leaders and experts in different genres involved in this event to identify sources of research. Um, we were to identify opportunities for improvement in response, data acquisition, networking, and uniformity as well as to guide research uh, that's gonna be focused to address the physical and mental health needs of the community. And by community, I I mean both citizens and first responders. Uh, The interesting thing about this project, and and I've been involved in two previous National Academy of Sciences uh, um, committees, this one was really the first time they ever focused directly on the community. Um, We had the... uh, workshop, which was uh, in November. But prior to that, there were seven committee planning meetings where they actually had the community members there, and they were driving the conversation, telling us their experiences, telling us where they thought the gaps were, which really helped us. You know, we we could assume, but, you know, we, we heard it straight from the horse's mouth.
0: Well, that's great. You're right, and and to get that that firsthand insight and understand what they really what they experience, what they're concerned about, that sounds like a really uh, a smart approach to have taken uh, in this instance. And so, with the report out now, and we'll put a link to the full report in our show notes. What were your top two or three takeaways from the uh, from the report and from the experience of engaging the community in this way?
1: Well, first and foremost, you know, unlike other disaster response plans. We really need to focus on making sure that the voice of the community should be moved higher, if not to the forefront, and uh, try and get all members uh, of the community. I mean, we didn't just have adults. There was uh, one community member who had her children there, and it was interesting to hear their impression and how it was going to affect their lives from a four-year-old or a 10-year-old. Um, because especially with something where there's long-term effects, it's great to hear from from the kids to see what we need to do to give them confidence to get through this. Uh, second of all, as we come up with solutions a one size fits all, I don't believe will fit all aspects, um, particularly uh, with the variance in, in mental health stress as well as physical stress. One of the things that I pointed out during the acute event, during evacuation, the person being evacuated from their home is going to be under a stressor. However, there's folks, our first responders, who have a duty to act, such as EMS, police, including emergency physicians, who, regardless of what is happening and what the facts are, we have to put on the Superman cape and dive into the soup, no matter what and what the ingredients are you have no idea so that's a different stress and then the third thing I think we need to realize is that um, and I think it was a hindrance uh, as we got into the planning sessions it was the committee was assumed was assembled months after the event and by that time you know there was fear of ongoing or threatened litigation um, people focusing on you know the blame who 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 is responsible for this and that should never take a higher priority over what the community needs and in fact there were several people who were invited to come to the to come and work on the planning committee who were prohibited by their employers or you know told that you know they can't participate because of ongoing litigation and and to me that you know, again, the economic the economic effect is going to be important, but it, again, it should not ever take priority over immediate care of the patient and putting the focus on the on the community. Well, yeah, it's such an
0: important thing you point out because I think I've seen this as well. Not observing as from as close in as you are in your role, but that that either involvement in litigation or fear of litigation keeps people from from jumping in and. Being able to fully participate, which is, you know, only through participation do we actually find out you know, what really went wrong, what what systemically went wrong. How do we fix it uh, going forward? You really need that frank exchange, and I think we've we've had we have a very hard time getting
1: there. Absolutely, and and I can even think of missing pockets, you know, that were important um, that we didn't get because of that. And so, as I read through the report. There were a number of things I saw that, uh,
0: I mean, so sort of sadly I've seen before, um, failure to communicate clearly and, and transparently with the community, uh, lack of coordination among the various agencies and entities involved, public and private sector. I mean, you get a whole uh, collection of different organizations to get involved in a large incident like this. And then, you know, the, the plans were insufficient for you know, despite a known hazard, um, probably considered to be a, a high consequence, low frequency kind of disaster, but, You know there was a bit of uh you know the plan never conforms exactly to to the disaster either so you've always got to be able to do some adaptation so do you do you agree with that with what i've just observed and how do you think we get to the point where we're not discussing these same things again in three to five years
1: um i agree with it with the grain of grain of salt we do need to have more information sharing and it needs to be shared with the community speaking with the people who were involved and who evacuated yeah, everybody wanted answers immediately and, and you can't blame folks, you know, they would Mm want to know how is this going to affect my family? Will I be able to go back to my home? I I've always had a beef with the advisories that have come out, uh, as it affects first responders, because we all know that hazmat units respond to these events, but the first people (laughs) on scene are not the hazmat unit. So, um, uh, You know, a lot of times, particularly the CDC will come out with guidances for hospitals, and then it'll be a couple days before they have a guidance for first responders. And we should at least have the opportunity to know what level of personal protective equipment we should be wearing. And if if we don't have it, make sure it gets shipped in right away, because if we're not there, the evacuation's not going to go well or it's not going to be as expeditious as it could um and 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 not only the the evacuation but also the the uh, response to the emergency um the challenge we have one of the challenges that we had with this is that it was multiple chemicals if it had been only one substance you could you know call a toxicologist or call whoever experts you have, and and kind of hone in on what needed to be done. But there were multiple chemicals involved that caught on fire. You have the release in the soil, but you also have the release in the air. And I don't know if there is any study where there's solid evidence that will give us a guidance on all these chemicals being burned together. Plus, with the substances that they form after the after they're combusted, that's yeah. not something that you can plan for.
0: No, that's you're absolutely right, and I think that's <clears throat> I think one of the we may be able to plan for at least think through is given that you're that you know you're not going to know all of those things. How do you best proceed? We ought to be able to anticipate that to a, to a certain extent, um, because you're you're right. You're not going to know what exactly is on any given train. And then you're right, when, the, when you get the combination of things together. Um, I also think that you're, you you pointed out the the mental stressors, which I think is also very important. and We've come to, you know, in recent years, gotten much more aware of these, is that when we, we think about planning evacuation, it's not people just sort of lining up like they're going out for a fire drill in sixth grade, where it's a sunny day and everybody knows there's not really a fire. When there is an actual incident, People are in a very different state and, and, and behave in different ways, which are, again, perfectly appropriate. Um, but we ought to be able to plan for that as well, including that, that, that need for instant information when you're not going to have it, be able to give them everything because you don't know it all yet.
1: And it's going to be dynamic. I mean, that's the way the pandemic was with COVID-19. A new virus, we thought we knew something, then we learned something else, and you have to shift gears. You know, that just happens.
0: Yeah. No, you're right. And I think being able to communicate with the public and gain their trust so that you can communicate and say we what you don't know and what's being done to, to remedy that. Uh, are there other changes you think need to be made to, to ensure future readiness for events such as this?
1: I think the other challenge, and, and it's it's everywhere, you know, when a disaster happens, it doesn't have a boundary. This was near uh, the, the border of Pennsylvania. So, you know, we had, it was multi-jurisdictional, but also multi-state. So you have responders coming in and, and it's always good to do drills, but your drills also need to involve agencies that are around you, even if it goes over a boundary. And I'm not faulting um, the locals for, you know, I don't even know who they do their drills with, but. When I think about even our FEMA regions, do our FEMA regions do drills across boundaries? Everything's kind of regionalized, which is great
0: if right. everybody's
1: and, using the same protocol, but that's not the case always.
0: Though no, you're right, and that's uh, and, and all the, all the disasters I've I've seen, they they don't read maps very well, so they don't respect those boundary lines we've drawn on them, drawn on maps. And can cross over, and just because we've we've divided things into artificial jurisdictions, which is appropriate for most times day to day, you've also got to be ready to, to cross over those boundaries as well. And uh, it's it's an important consideration.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And when I look at Ohio and Pennsylvania, like in terms of EMS, we have we have um, we're a home rule state. They have statewide protocols, so there's a variance. And I think they worked well together, but sometimes that can be a challenge—not um, only just for EMS, but for hazmat units, law enforcement, etc. You
0: no, know, and I think especially when you get into the second, secondary, and tertiary uh, phases of an incident, because you're right, you know, when the when things are on fire, people come together and they can usually figure it out pretty quickly because the, the need is is very apparent and the the protocols are at least close enough that they can. They can figure it out, but it's when you get to that next stage of, again, you're working with a community that's been affected by, in this case, a chemical release and a a burn with a lot of potentially toxic smoke. Uh, If you're treating it differently in Ohio than you are in Pennsylvania, those folks probably talk to each other, and that's going to cause more confusion on the ground if there isn't some consistency there.
1: And as all of us know, you know, the, the, the disaster goes better. When everybody knows each other in advance and you yeah. practice together, etc.
0: No, absolutely, and it's uh, it's so important to do that. I know it takes a lot of work and can take a lot of time. Doesn't have to cost a lot of money, but you you take some time in planning to be able to get a a large enough exercise together to get people working outside of their normal jurisdictional boundaries. But it's so so important because I think you you can you learn a ton, if nothing else. By watching how somebody else approaches the same the same crisis, you are.
1: Yeah, and when you're doing this, you need to involve the uh, private sector too, that are just across the state border.
0: That's right, absolutely. And it's I, I just went through a, a major exercise. I was helping do some facilitation around up in in, in Canada after this particular incident in, in Ohio. Uh, this is a major rail hub up in Canada. They were worried about the same kind of thing, and they they. Uh, Pulled it together and did pull it with a lot of actually quite active participation by the private sector, which was great because they again they brought this distinct perspectives, uh, distinct knowledge, and it really was great to see people coming together and and working together, knowing that they hope this never happens, but if it does, they really need to be prepared to respond in an intelligent and effective manner.
1: You know, and on a positive note, I think um, you know when I look at the the transparency. Um, and, and i've never registered for any political party but i'm a i'm a people first person you know let's take care of the people and then worry about everything else later fighting out blame this and the other but i've um during the pandemic and also during this event you know our governor he, he's a people first person and uh and i really like that i really like that it's you know, let's let's help the people before we start pointing fingers at anybody.
0: No, absolutely. I think that's something we've learned from aviation and other sectors. It's so important to have to get in there and, and learn what you can without worrying about blame. There's there's always gonna be time for the for the blame to go around if it if it's warranted. But to actually get in and get people talking without fear or blame, you can find out what really went wrong. That's the only way you learn and get better going forward. Absolutely. Which, which leads me to my next question, which is that, you know, again, we're seeing all sorts of events re- re- uh, resulting in the release of toxins because our, our lives are full of, of toxins. We put them around the house. We've got them in our communities. You know, fires, floods. There is more and more things that, that are releasing toxins. So as a public health leader, what advice do you have for preparing for such a future? What can public and private sector organizations do, uh, community leaders, to get us ready for that unfortunate uh, consequence of, of more and more incidents?
1: Um, one of the things that I think needs to happen is that in order to get good data on a toxin and its long-term and short-term effects, the first thing you have to do is, even if it's a a quick on a sheet of paper or whatever, get a registry of the people who were there. You know, we don't always do that that well, um, and and record you know how close they were to the event etc you know we need to actually have that and be able to follow those folks one of the frustrating things i think is as a physician is particularly you know we follow the physical health in a in a moderate way but for the mental health that's even tougher for those who don't practice medicine when you when you see a patient and you go to close out the chart you put down your diagnosis and it's a drop down menu that's that's developed by CMS. However, if you have somebody who has, you know, you think has got anxiety or post traumatic stress or whatever, secondary to that event, there's not a drop down category that will link them to that. And that was so true with COVID. Um, you know, if you had COVID and died, You know, you could click COVID-19, but if you had somebody who committed suicide or was depressed or whatever, secondary to their work stress at COVID or whatever, there was no way to log that. So we don't have a great data pool. So that's one of the things that I I would hope that we would do in the future. And then I also think that we need to, again, like I said, one solution isn't going to fit all. Being evacuated from your home is stressful. Moving on with life is going to be different if you're in your 20s or 30s and you're still working versus someone who's retired, has their home paid off, and is now on a fixed income and they may not be able to go back to their home. Yeah, that's just it's stressful, but different types of stress. So we need to acknowledge that. And then the research, I think, that needs to be done is try and find people who've been through this before. I'm an old salty sailor, and I was actually in medical school or residency when the event happened at Fernald in southeast Ohio, which was a chemical exposure but intentional, where a company was dumping radioactive material into the soil, and... Uh, one of the things i recommended if the cdc and the national academies can find some of those folks who are now grown up ask them how did that affect you like as a child how how is it affecting that you don't have a high school to go back to for high school reunions what was it like for your family to regroup because you know all those homes got they're gone they're, the whole community there is gone i think they turn that area into a dog walking park or something like that after the cleanup. And then lastly, I think, you know, private sectors are so underestimated the power of them to help, to heal, to support a response uh, needs to be highlighted because, you know, we think private sector, but they are, they're part of the fabric of the community. And if they're around, they're willing to help. You just have to do what you need to have done.
0: Absolutely. And I, I've been an advocate for a while now of what, what I we at the NPLI call a uh, planned surge, knowing that there are, in any community, even one as small as, as East Palestine, that uh, there are private sector organizations that are going to want to help out when they can. So if you can anticipate that, think what you may need and what they might be able to do and have that conversation up front. It's a lot easier than trying to figure it out. In the moment or shortly thereafter, people just sort of show up and either ask what to do or they show up with a bunch of stuff and you're trying to figure out if you can put it to use or not. But the, it really helps knit the community together for preparedness in advance of any event. If you can have that, you know, whatever hit us, the tornado with the train derailment, it's whatever happens to come along, who's willing to do what? Who's going to step forward and provide food or equipment or people or whatever else you've got to, to offer? Who's, who do you think is going to want to step
1: forward? exactly and and then i think the last thing is again it's part of my people first (laughs) you know i mentioned the first responders first responders have to dive in but they are also under stress of you know how's my family If you can just make sure that you have made sure that you can't concentrate on your job if there's something going on at home or you're worried that your kids may be stuck in a school and don't have a ride home. Um, if, if you know that, that that's been taken care of, you can focus 100% on the response, all your attention, versus being distracted or, or just, uh, having to, just having that extra stress of not knowing.
0: No, absolutely. and I'm glad you brought that point up because it's something that we have learned internationally in some, some areas, some jurisdictions with terror attacks. Um, was people are trained? The first thing you do is take that 30 seconds to check in with your family, let them know you're okay, and that they're that make sure the family is okay, because um, no matter what you've pledged to do as a first responder, if your family's in trouble, that's going to be the first thing in your mind, uh, and you're right, you're not going to be able to focus. So, having a way to do that, or have a uh, again a way for uh, some capability in place that you can reach out and check people and make sure they they are okay. Because um, the last thing you want to do is be responding to your own, your own in your own community, and you're not sure where your family is and if they're okay. We've got to recognize that the people, first responders, are are, are not, uh, not not robots, right? They're people. They're people. We're too. human. Yeah, we're human humans. Beings. Humans too. Uh, we cry. Awesome. We
1: bleed. Yes.
0: Exactly. And you care a lot. That's why you're in the business. But you also have fears and other emotions and, and things that have to be dealt with. And so. I think that's a that's an important thing to recognize. of How how are we checking on those who are checking on us uh, and the families of those people? Because um, I think again, there are ways to do it. It takes a little bit of thought, but it doesn't necessarily have to cost a lot of money or be overly complicated. Just to make sure that you are you're taking care of that and, and keeping everybody as focused as possible. And if they if there are families involved, you may want to have them. You know what? You're not responding to this. You're going to come. You're going to do something else, and we're going to have somebody else in there. Uh, who is able to focus because you want the best out of all the people who have who are deploying
1: yes absolutely
0: so now i want to ask you a question completely out of left field because i think what what i know because i've known you for for quite a while but many people may not realize is that you actually besides all your work in in emergency medicine public health you sit on the rock the board of the rock and roll hall of fame so since we're recording this shortly after the grammys what did you think of the Grammys this year? With a lot of a lot of uh, chatter on social media, a lot of positive response I saw. What did you think about the the, the ceremony this year?
1: <laughs> I actually had it on my TV, but I had so much work, I was just listening. Uh, I thought it was energetic. The Grammys uh, honors uh, honors a lot of lot of different artists, and and linking this with disaster response, uh, a disaster leader. Sometimes you need to be quiet and listen to the smallest voice in the room. I was really excited that um you know the 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 bands that are on the Grammys are they actually televised or very commercially popular, but there's so much talent out there that doesn't get the airplay that it should or the advertisement that it was that it that, that it that it really deserves. So there were probably two um awards I was really excited about that or were smaller awards that probably weren't on TV. Um, uh, the first were the best jazz performers, uh, Samara Joy, young girl who came up through some, uh, just some jazz, jazz uh, uh, schools, and actually performed at our jazz festival last year, just a fantastic voice. And she's young, it makes you realize that 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 art is never gonna be lost. And then the second one was the Best Global Music Album, which was won by a, a a band called Shakti, and the album was called This Moment. And I'm sure that when they won this Grammy, for a lot of people, that might have been the first time they ever heard of this band. But it's, it's nothing for me to fly across the country to go see a show. And I had gone, I flew to the New Jersey uh, Performance Arts Center for one night uh, to hear Shakti, it was their fiftieth anniversary, and people were just like, "I never heard of that band." Well, they've been around for fifty years <laughs> with John McLaughlin, and and it was just, it was just a great show. So I was really excited because a lot of times, you know, they they probably didn't make a lot of money off their albums because a lot of people don't know them, but you need to know them, and you need to know other music that's not food sped to you by the by the radio. I think people who who maybe listen to NPR and Tiny Desk probably get exposed to more novel novel musicians. But uh, yeah, you know yeah. It, it was it was a good ceremony. But I, I, again, I, I look at the I'm one of those people when I go to the movies, I'll stay till the end so I can see the artists on the scores because they probably don't get the props that they should
0: absolutely well we know every community has music and music brings us together so i think that's an important thing for all of us in in the disaster preparedness response business to remember because it is and that was one of the themes i took away from this year's grammys was we saw different artists getting together supporting each other and uh, and really showing how you know back to your notion of people first we are all people first and all people pretty much all people love music in, in one form or another and it's a great way to, to to see our common humanity and then the different expressions of it with, you know, two new artists here, but maybe maybe new to many people, uh, so we, people can go check them out and have a new soundtrack as they're uh, rolling into work.
1: Yeah, and and I tell you, I love artists that also give back to their community. Um, going back to the Grammys last year, um, it's, a, it's one of my favorite jam bands, Snarky Puppy. I'm like, Snarky Puppy, what's that? Well, they have a ground-up music festival in Miami, and they, don't, they donate so much time and energy into music schools where kids don't have access. And um, they were performing, and they actually stopped. It was the night of the Grammys. Um, they, they won the Best Contemporary Instrumental Album for their, their uh, album, Empire Central and this particular festival has musicians it's a musician's festival it's people from all over the world who come to this and it's small and they stopped it (laughs) they stopped (laughs) them in the middle of their performance and their manager just brought out this crate of champagne hey you just won the grammys Uh (laughs) uh-huh and yeah and it was just around around the audience but again um you know how many people have heard of that band and they're fabulous musicians
0: Oh, that's good. Well, that's good things to to, uh, close out our conversation with. Although I do want to ask you one last question, which is the one I, the final question I ask each one of my guests. What gives you hope?
1: I think at this time in space, post pandemic, I go to a lot of career days and, um, and because I do believe that mentorship is important. I think that. What gives me hope is to see the light go off in a kid's eye of excitement. And then the other thing is to to see kids out on the playground. They they're colorblind, they have friends, they're connecting, they're not on they're not hooked on to text messaging. You know, if they have a, a disagreement, they'll throw a few punches, talk it over, then walk off the playground holding hands. We need to keep that going into adulthood. Let's have direct communication. Let's settle our conflicts. Let's walk off holding hands, knowing that we're stronger together than we are apart and still have time to talk to a three-year-old because to me, that's like the most refreshing conversation that you can have because it's 200% honesty and the truth.
0: Well, that's great. And what a a great thought to close on. Carol, thank you so much for being with us today. You've, You've shared a lot of wisdom, and I'm sure our listeners are going to practice differently because of it.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you.
0: My guest for this episode has been Dr. Carol Cunningham, State Medical Director for the Ohio Department of Public Safety, Division of Emergency Medical Services. Until next time, remember that you're it. Be ready to lead when it matters most. This has been another episode of Leader Readycast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader Readycast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.